Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hope you're enjoying the podcast. I tell you, I'm having a very good time putting these shows together. It's been a lot of fun. But I'd like to ask a favor. Well, favors plural, actually. First, please tell all your friends about The Bruce Traveler. Share us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just send, just send a link in a text. Tell them about the podcast, the website, whatever. If they like craft beer, I think they might like the show. Secondly, go over to iTunes and give us a big hug. Simply post a five-star rating and a short review telling people what you like about the show. And if you really love us and want to support the podcast, help us grow the Bruise Traveler, head to the website, thebruisetraveler.com, click on the Patreon link, and there you'll find out how you can make a modest monetary contribution to our production and programming. Thank you. And now, a story about what happens when you stay out too late at the bar. My friend Harvey married Tracy McCall. I cry she was a scary old doll. A voice out of hell and a temper to boot. Arms like a navy and a face like dried fruit. I bumped into Harvey back home last year. Says I to him, do you want to go for a beer? Though my sister's French husband is over, says he. I've been sent to get snails to impress him for tea. I was down in the snail shop, she told me to go. I'm a little bit late because business was slow. If I'm not home by six, I'll surely be done. The missus will kill me, let's just go for the one. The one, the one, don't go for the one. Don't go for the one, for the one, for the one. The one, the one, don't go for the one. Don't go for the one, for the one, for the one. For the one went on fast, the second did two. Three or four followed, was a fine, how do you do? Harvey looked at his watch, shrieked out with fright. It was twenty past ten, we'd been drinking all night. Well, cursing my name, he spit across the floor. Clutching the snails, he ran out the door. I'm a dead man, he said. I'm drunk and I'm late. As he tore down the road and up to his gate. The one, the one, don't go for the one. Don't go for the one, for the one, for the one. The one, the one, don't go for the one. Don't go for the one, for the one, for the one. Well, he opened the gate and he ran down the path, but he knew he was in for the dragon's wrath. But he tripped and he fell and up in the air with the bag, with the snails flying everywhere. Hearing the noise, she kicked open the door. Snails and Harvey were spread across the floor. You're three hours late. She screamed loud as she could What's your excuse? This had better be good Well he looks down at the snails And with a confident dare He says Five more feet lads We're nearly there The one, the one Don't go for the one Don't go for the one For the one, for the one The one, the one Don't go for the one Don't go for the one For the one, for the one The one, the one Don't go for the one Don't go for the one For the one, for the one The one, the one Don't go for the one Don't go This is episode number nine. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. Hello, everybody, and thank you for putting us in your ear. I'm Alan Tatman, and I'll be your host for the next 50 minutes or so. 
I'm also the chief cat herder for Team Bruce Traveler. And I'm coming to you almost live from the edge of the bluffs over the Missouri River in the scenic capital of Jefferson City, Missouri, my adopted hometown. And uh, if my voice sounds a bit different this week, maybe a bit raspy or deeper or a little froggy, well, I've got something going on with my sinuses and bronchial passages. It's nothing to worry about. Um, I'm taking care of it, just going to make sure that it doesn't morph into a summertime head cold because we all know how much those really suck. <laughs> but doing everything I need to do and uh, keep that at bay. This week on the podcast, we're going to do something a bit different. I sat down uh, a couple of weeks ago with Kyle Hopkins, the brand ambassador and a gourmand for Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City. And Kyle graciously offered to set up a pairing uh, that is a tasting of bites and beers from Boulevard's Smokestack series of specialty brews. And we talked about how food and beer can enhance your gastronomical experiences, either at home or at your favorite restaurants, pub, bar, wherever you might get craft beer and food in the same place. Beer isn't just for peanuts and popcorn and pizza and hot dogs and whatever, you know, we think of salty snacks and chips. Because of this great variety of beer that's out there now, there's so many flavors and good foods that can be enhanced by different quality of craft beers. I learned a lot from Kyle doing this week's interview, and I hope you enjoy it. We've also got a report from our friend, freelance journalist Tony Rehagen, about the growth of craft breweries. And we look at the question, how long can this growth sustain itself and where might the industry be going? But first, we're going to take a look at the history of beer as a food over the past 12,000 years. And that's a very long football playing time, so... Let's get on down the road. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. So this week I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to talk about uh, the history and geography of Kansas City today. Today I'm going to talk about archaeology, anthropology, and history as it relates to beer. Now, I was driving through Iowa last week, and uh, or maybe it was Wisconsin, I don't remember exactly, and I saw a sign that said, if you've eaten today, thank a farmer. Well, you could also say, if you've drank a beer today, thank a farmer. Beer is a result of agricultural commodities, grains, hops. You could even say yeast is a cultivated uh, creature. I guess you could say somebody that grew yeast could technically be a yeast farmer. But this all started about 12,000 years ago, 10,000 BCE. There was a great shift in the Near East, the Fertile Crescent. That's the area from Iraq, Iran, up into southern Turkey, uh, the Euphrates and Tigris valleys of uh, modern Iraq, down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and into the Nile Valley of Egypt. What happened in this area of 
the world was there was a dramatic shift from Paleolithic, that is the old Stone Age, to Neolithic in a short period of about 2,000 years, almost entirely skipping what we find in other parts of the world known as the Mesolithic or the Middle uh, Stone Age. And the Neolithic period is categorized by a few different things when man's behavior changes. First off, they start to stay in settled places rather than moving around, chasing game, hunting, gathering seasonal foods. They settled into villages. First, of course, they would have been probably just camps. There was a sense of cooperation in the Neolithic period. Men were no longer living in small bands of 30 or less people. They started to grow into larger groups, tribes, if you will. There was new technology that emerged during this time. Pottery, woven textiles, woven baskets. Man began to uh, domesticate wild animals, livestock, dogs, uh, eventually cats. And you might say, well, what's important is a cat? You know what? If it weren't for cats, we'd be overrun with mice. But I digress. Where was I? Okay, another thing that they, these Neolithic people developed was the cultivation of grains. One of the things they found out about these wild grains is that if they save some of the seeds, apparently, when you throw them back out, you can keep growing these crops over and over and over. Another thing about the grains is they stored quite well. And so they would start making granaries. We've got archaeological evidence of pits in the ground being made to store all kinds of wild grains, such as barley, wheat, millet, grain sorghum, etc., etc. How Neolithic man ate these grains at the beginning is kind of a controversy, and I'll get into that in just a little bit. But The easiest way would have been to crush the grains, crack them open, if you will, dig a pit, a small pit. Maybe you would line the pit with animal hides, and then you would put the grain in there with water, and you would take hot stones and throw them in there until you got the water to boil. And you'd wait for it to cool a little bit, you'd fish the stones out, and then you'd have a soupy, starchy gruel. Now, obviously, at some point in time, some of this gruel would be left sitting around. And wild yeast that are just floating out in the air, they would somehow or another get into the liquid and they would begin to ferment the sugars in the grain into alcohol. When this first began was probably not more than 10,000 years ago, but it, it was obviously widespread from Iran all the way to Egypt about 4,000 BCE, 6,000 years ago. There are pictographs that have been found in Mesopotamia showing figures, human figures, drinking through straws out of large vessels. And we know from later writings, this was how beer was first consumed in that civilization. Now, why this happened in the Middle East and not somewhere else is kind of an accident of natural history. The climate was particularly right in that area for large stands of these wild grains to grow over the plains. And, of course, this brought in migrating that would come in to eat the grain. And, of course, the hunter-gatherers coming out of Africa followed those animals to this region. So, as they figured out how to then domesticate the animals, harvest these grains, store these grains... The first settlements began to appear 
in the Middle East. And there was a steady supply of food, so populations grew. The next big innovation in beer was the discovery of malting. Now, this was probably completely accidental. Some grain probably got wet, and when grain gets wet in a warm environment, it will sprout, and this is called malting. And that releases additional sugars in the grain. Now, as you know, the more sugar you have in the liquid, the higher the alcohol content will become. And so this became a desirable trait over the course of many thousands of years in the making of gruel, which became beer, which became stronger beer. Pottery was discovered in 6000 BCE, but most anthropologists uh, agree that brewing was going on before pottery was made. They could have brewed beer in water skins made from animal hides, in an animal's stomach. A hollow log would have been an appropriate uh, place to brew beer, and that's still done today. In Finland, there's a type of beer called sati, which is still traditionally brewed in a hollow log. Pottery, of course, is one of those things that was important to the development of civilization. It was also important to in uh, viticulture, that is, making wine, and it really expanded the brewing of beer. So after 6000 BCE, we start to see fragments of pottery that have residue of early evidence of brewing beer. Pottery also assisted in movement of people. Brewers could take their pottery vessels, which they brewed the beer. Now, they didn't understand yeast, so they didn't know that some vessels made better beer than others. And so they would use the same vessels that made the best beer time and time again. And when we get into the early writing period, we know this because the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians are writing that how brewers can move their vessels around. Beer was thought to be magical. It induced these alcoholic euphoria. They didn't really understand how this worked, so they thought it was a gift from the gods. So, of course, beer, along with other alcohol, wine, they become important parts of religious rites in these Middle Eastern pre pre-Judaism, pre-Christian religions. There's even some speculation by biblical scholars that the Last Supper, they did not drink wine. You see, Palestine, Canaan, Judea, whatever you want to call that part of the world there, that was a grain-growing culture. Grapes were not cultivated widely in that part, and if they were, it was very rare, and wine was quite expensive. The Romans who conquered that area, they looked upon beer drinkers as being uncouth, uncivilized. So wine, if it was drank in any quantities, it had to be imported from Italy, Greece, Turkey, and Iran into that part of the Middle East. It was beer that was the prevalent drink, and it was used in religious ceremonies, as I said, by the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and probably would have been done so by the early, early proto-Judeo and proto-Christian peoples. So why in the Bible does it always mention wine and it never mentions beer? Well, who rewrote the Bible in the 3rd century CE? during the reign of Emperor Constantine of Rome. The Romans. And the Romans thought of beer as being a barbaric. It's what the plebes, what the poor people drank. The people that are important, they drank wine. 
So that's one controversy surrounding the early use of beer. Another one is, which came first, beer or bread? Well, early Mesopotamian brewers found out how to control the taste and color of their beer by adding uh, an ingredient they called bapir. It's beer bread. And to make bapir, what they did is they took sprouted barley and it was shaped into lumps like small loaves, which were baked to produce a dark brown, crunchy, unleavened bread that could be stored for very long periods of time before it was crumbled into little bits and put into the brewer's vat. Bapir wasn't so much a bread as it was a convenient way to keep necessary ingredients for making beer uh, over a long period of time. So the debate goes on. Did Beer come from bread or did bread come from beer? And who knows? We're never going to really figure that one out. They're both the same thing. A thick gruel could be baked in the sun or next to a hot on a hot stone next to a fire to make flatbread. Uh, a thin gruel could be left to make beer. So it's probably they emerged at about the same time. The other thing that came about with the creation of beer were social traditions, and several people, they'd get together, they'd drink beer from the same vessel. Now, we know this because there's a lot of drawings from this period showing figures standing around a large pottery vessel, sucking liquid out of this vessel. And the reason it was done with straws is because they hadn't yet quite learned how to filter beer. And all the chaff and the residue and the yeast and stuff would all rise to the top. So you took a straw and you got down through that surface tension. You got the straw down in there and you sucked up the good stuff from below all the stuff that was floating on the top. So beer early on becomes a beverage which is shared communally. You're all using straws. You're all drinking out of the same vessel. It's kind of a communal thing. Everybody was drinking out of the same jugs, whether they be drinking beer or water. Another great thing about beer in this early time is contaminated water could make you very sick. And when people started living in large enclosed areas with large populations, guess what happens? Fecal matter gets in the groundwater. And what happens when fecal matter gets in the groundwater, you get sick. But they discovered that if we drink beer, we won't get sick. And so they made a lot of different styles of beer. They made some what they what we would today call a mild beer, which would be two, three percent alcohol, all the way up to strong ales. But the mild beer, that was what was consumed on a daily basis by almost everyone, including children. Now, I've gone on about this. Most of this information I got from Tom Standage's book, A History of the World in Six Glasses. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But now I think it's time that we go on to meet Kyle Hopkins, talk more about food and beer and beer and food. Kyle Hopkins of Boulevard Brewing, and this is your interview of the week. Beer Hall on Madison Street in Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm here with Kyle Hopkins, who is their brand ambassador. And Kyle, thanks for inviting us into the Beer Hall. This is the first time I've been here, and this is a magnificent facility you've got here. You've got two floors. How many bars in here? Uh, yeah, well, hey, we're glad you made it, Alan. This is awesome. Um, we've got two floors. Uh, on the second floor is what we consider our beer hall. Uh, we got a capacity of well over 400 people, uh, which is very different. Our old space 
that we moved out of two years ago had capacity of about uh, 40 people, so we can accommodate a lot more people that no love kidding. beer. Um, so the beer, up, uh, the bar upstairs, anybody can come to uh, any time. It's just open for people to come buy beers, buy flights, come try uh, any of our 24 beers on tap. Uh, we have another bar that we recently opened on the second floor. Uh, it's kind of our test beers and wild beers. Uh, so I know right now we've got like a test smoked Bach. Uh, we've got a Muscat grape uh, hybrid beer. We've got a Brute IPA. We've got a Peach Saison. Uh, we've got like an, uh, a cookie stout. Uh, I can't legally say they're made with Oreos, so I won't, but a, a cookie stout. Um, and then we, we do all sorts of uh, kind of fun tappings over in that wild, uh, the wild side bar. And then downstairs, we have a bar that has no registers. If you ever come take a tour, you start downstairs, uh, you leave this building and go all through our facilities and learn all about our history and our brewery and all that good stuff. And then you end up back uh, in our tasting room bar on the first floor and you get a couple samples at the end of your, uh, at the end of your tour. Nice. And speaking of samples, we've just got a smokestack flight, a couple of them. It's a rough life, huh? Oh, my gosh. We're doing something a little different today than we normally do with the interview. What Kyle has so graciously uh, offered to do as, his, as host here is to do a smokestack series food pairing. And we have before us here five delicious-looking beverages and then five little... Uh, what would you say, hors d'oeuvres to go along with these? Yeah, we like to say about two bites, maybe three. So this is, this is fantastic. But before we dig into the beer and start uh, quaffing on the ales, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been here? What was your background? And there we yeah. go. Um, so I've been here about five years. Uh, I came uh, in early 2013, so I guess I'm over five years at this point. I started uh, my professional life as an English teacher. Uh, people always asked, uh, oh, have you been in the alcohol industry long? And I said, pretty much since college, because I was a teacher. <laughs> and teachers are more or less in the alcohol industry um, as consumers. Um, yeah, but so I, uh, I ended up getting a summer job here. You know, summers for a teacher, uh, I'm still getting a paycheck, but I don't want to just lie on the couch all summer. So I got a job doing tours here a couple days a week. Uh, so I got to learn all about Boulevard history, and I got to learn about the process of making beer. Um, and of course, as a teacher, I just wanted to learn more and learn more and learn more. Uh, so I really dove into it and started reading about it. Uh, and then my wife and I actually started writing. And we wrote about both beer and food. Uh, we wrote a column called Cooking with Booze for about four years, where we created recipes, usually using beer, but sometimes whiskey and sometimes wine. Um, so I've kind of had this bug of, of beer and food combining uh, for a long time. Uh, when I came on full-time at Boulevard, uh, the company was gracious enough to pay uh, for my first go at the Cicerone exam. Uh, so I took the Cicerone exam, and that's high stakes, because if you fail, uh, you've got to pay for it. That's Ray Daniels' program, isn't it? It is, yeah. So, um, and I was doing like the, uh, you know, there's kind of the basic beer server, and then there's the next level. It's like a five or $600 test. Um, and so I studied my butt off for that, and uh, I ended up passing, and I became a Cicerone. Um, but at the same time, I was actually developing the menu for this beer hall, and I was, I was validated. I got a 98% on the food and beer portion. Fantastic. Uh, um, so this really is kind of my forte, and, and I do stuff, events, I do beer dinners, I help put together promotions for Boulevard all over the country. 
Uh, I've helped create our barbecue sauce downstairs and a new wing sauce with our jam band beer. And so my mind is constantly kind of in this world of how beer and food work together uh, in all sorts of ways. You're from Kansas City? I am, yeah, born and raised. And, and so you kind of grew up with Boulevard. Yeah, I like to say I've been drinking Boulevard beer since I was 11. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's not actually accurate. I probably waited until I was 13. But I, I will say, though, honestly, there was Boulevard beer in my fridge as long as I can remember. Right. My, my dad still drinks one Boulevard wheat uh, every day. Keeps yeah. him alive. Keeps him strong. Yeah, and this is looking really great. What yeah. are we, so you want to dive in? Yeah, let's do this. Well, we, I, maybe I'll just kind of start by just talking about the philosophy here. Okay. So, um, you know, the food you're looking at, obviously, I'm always thinking about colors and flavors and textures. Uh, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but when we talk about pairing, there's kind of a couple basic uh, philosophies you're gonna think about. Uh, the first is gonna be a connection. There's gonna be some flavor in the food, and there's gonna be a similar flavor that you're gonna find in the beer. So something connecting it. Uh, the other side of that is gonna be like a contrast. Now you can think something like uh, peanut butter and jelly or something along those lines, mm -hmm. where there are two things that are different, but they work so well together. Um, and the final one is kind of a, some kind of a synergy kind of thing. Uh, a good example of that's like a, a raspberry lambic with chocolate. It ends up tasting like a raspberry covered in chocolate. And right. so then you're almost creating a whole other flavor people are used to. I always say a good pairing can do all three. Uh, that third one's a little hard to do all the time. But if there are some flavors in the food that connect with the beer, and there's some flavors in the food that contrast the beer, uh, you're going to highlight and, and bring out different things in the beer that hopefully kind of delight people's palates. Uh, well, let's jump right in. Sure. I'm going to warn you, we got some boozy beers here in front of you. I hope you're okay with that. I'm okay. <laughs> all right. I've got an RV sitting outside if I need to take a nap. <laughs> you're out. good. I'm you're good. good. <laughs> I'm good. Okay, what um, are we doing here? So we're going to go left to right. Uh, let's okay. start with this first beer. Let's just dive into that. So this is the Changeling. Uh, this is the second year we've made this uh, beer. So we have a beer called Snow and Tell. Uh, it's oh, like I remember a, that. You've yeah. had that. Yeah. So, so we aged some of that beer in bourbon barrels. Mm -hmm. We aged some of that beer in red wine barrels. And then there's some other stuff blended in, uh, Imperial Stout, a, a farmhouse, uh, Cezanne. Oh, there's a lot of... Yeah, lot yeah, so of, put your nose in there. There's, there's, I can smell both wine and the vanilla. Yeah, yeah, that wine, for me, that wine barrel smell is prominent. Right. I love it. So take a sip. So there's definitely sourness, but there's also some sweetness kind of underneath. Um, hopefully you're kind of also tasting almost like a berry tartness, yeah? That's, that's really good. Good. Uh, oh, what's the ABV on that? Uh, we're sitting right at 8.2% on this beer. No kidding. It doesn't, it doesn't taste that yeah. that high. It's like, an, and it's, you're right, you got the lingering, there's a little bit of sweetness underneath, but you got the drying and the tartness and, yeah, and the aroma up front of the wine, yeah. So, for these pairings in front of you, um, you know, we sell beer all over the place now. So if you're going to visit us in Kansas City uh, and, and try Kansas City beer, I want you to have some Kansas City, at least somewhat local food in front of you. And a lot of the food here is somewhat local. So this first bite we have is made by a bakery, a place called Heirloom Bakery. Uh, and we've become good friends with them. They've done bites for us uh, for a couple different things. Now, this is a goat cheese cheesecake bite. Now, goat cheese to me has a nice tang to it. And I think we're going to get a connection uh, with that tang to the, the tartness of the beer. Uh, on the bottom, they have a, a crust. Now, they actually make their crust out of animal crackers. I don't know if that's a, a secret I'm not supposed to give away, but their crust is outrageous. 
And then obviously on top, we have a big, beautiful blackberry. Uh, so that blackberry tartness is gonna connect with the tartness in the beer. I didn't say it, but that, that crust on the bottom should also connect with the darker malt character right. in there. So I would recommend just kind of maybe taking half of this, putting it in your mouth, chewing it up, and then we'll go back to the beer. No, I mean, mm. I haven't had one of these in a while. That's oh. so good. <laughs> That's delicious. So once you got all the flavors, now, you know, go back to the beer and let it kind of wash down. Oh, yeah. See, and I get some of that blackberry kind of to mm -hmm. the forefront. Yep. I actually think anytime we've done this kind of a goat cheese, tangy cheese with a sour beer, it often kind of tempers the sourness. Uh, I think it kind of neutralizes it. Now, not all the way. It's still a sour beer. But I think it really helps people that visit the brewery who might be timid about trying a sour beer, mm -hmm. uh, way less timid. I think they, they get into this and they say, well, you know what? With that dessert, suddenly it's not as scary. And you know... A, a tart dessert is nothing new to a lot of people. No. People love lemon pie and all sorts of tart desserts. Mm. Well, are you a fan so far? Are we oh, doing yeah. it? I have fallen. I've fallen in love with sour beers over the last couple of years, and this is this is a good one. Is this uh, draft only, or is this also available packaged? Um, in the, in the smokestack bottles? Yes, seven yep. fifties, almost okay. exclusively. Okay. Um, it ends up on draft a few places, right? Uh, uh, but not a lot, right? Yeah, see that crust down there, that animal cracker crust, I think works so well with the dark malts in here. <laughs> Talking with a mouthful of, oh, this is good. <laughs> mm. Awesome. All right, All right well, let's, uh, let's move on. So this next beer is uh, our double IPA. Uh, it is called The Calling. Look, I've had it, and I love it. Good. Yeah. And so we're going to go up about 0.3% in ABV. So now we're sitting right at 8.5%. Right, right. Uh, this is also 75 IBUs. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we've got some bitterness here. But but I think this beer also, it, it's so heavily dry hopped, and, and there's enough sticking up to it, uh, malt sticking up to it, that it doesn't read as bitter as some right. other kind of pinier IPAs. So again, let's just put our nose in there. Mmm. Oh, that's so good. It's so refreshing after the change like too. I know. It's uh, drying. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so our thought process here, uh, we're kind of going with a pretty typical kind of beer accompaniment, meat and cheese. So the bread on bottom here is from Farm to Market right down the road. Uh, the meat we have on here is from Burger's Smokehouse, uh, also oh, yeah. a Missouri company. Uh, we have a little uh, just grated Parmesan on top. And then this jam that's sitting on top is made by a local company called KC Canning Company. Um, this is a Clementine thyme jam. So it's got some citrus fruit and it has some herbal character, just like a good IPA. So we're going to get a nice bridge mm -hmm. to the flavors in the beer through that jam. We're going to get a bridge to the flavors in the malts from the toast. And then we're going to have really good contrast with a nice fatty meat uh, and some good Parmesan cheese. All right. Should we dive in? Yes. <laughs> it's almost like a croque monsieur or whatever mm -hmm. that's called. So same thing. Once those flavors are in there, go back to the beer. That's really good. I could eat that every day of my life. That's uh, smoked ham? Uh-huh. It, it is. It's like a... I can't, I can't remember what they call it, but it is a ham, but it actually does spend time uh, dry curing, but they do also smoke it. I'm very... I mean, we have it. Jefferson City, we're only 30 miles from them, so it's in all the stores. They have really good meats. Yeah, I love what they do. We actually, we use their bacon sometimes for specials. Again, like I said, you know, we try to stay somewhat local, and there's so many good producers of meats and cheeses and jams and all that stuff. 
why not use local, you know? It's good, isn't it? He's, yeah. trying, he's putting the jam on his finger right there, and it, yeah. it is. It's so good. I wanted to taste it by itself. And it works so well with the beer, in my opinion. When I first was putting together uh, this version of our Smokestack flight, I was yeah. I was trying that jam with the with the beer, and I ended up I brought it in and we didn't have any uh, utensils in the office, so we were taking chopsticks <laughs> and digging it into the jar and tasting it and falling, and everyone was just moaning like this is so good. That is that's fantastic. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So there's like five hops and then five hops we use in dry hopping as well. So some of them overlap, but. I actually one day got suckered into helping dry hop this and had to carry big hop bags up to the top of one of our fermenters. And it's a job. There's a lot of hops oh, going yeah. in there at the end of this process. Yeah, that, eight different additions of hops. That's, uh, that's that, how we get that beautiful flavor. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's wonderful. All right, should we keep going? Yes, please. So I think this is really fun just philosophically. Our next two beers are kind of connected. So our next beer is the sixth class. Uh, it's a Belgian quad. I think I've had this. It's it's one of the best beers we make, in my opinion. Um, it did win the World Beer Cup um, two and a half years ago, won gold medal for the best quad in the world, um, for good reason. Uh, it is a great Belgian quad. Now, the fourth beer in this flight is going to be the bourbon barrel quad. It's the same beer, but we've aged it in bourbon barrels, and we've added cherries. So... One of my goals with this kind of part of the flight was to really help showcase what happens when a beer is aged in bourbon barrels and help kind of teach people that come in what happens. Um, So hopefully we can kind of see that process as we go through. Well, let's jump into the sixth class. Uh, You know that you always know the brewers are making this when you're in the the brewery because... uh, Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Because they... um, there's brown sugar, there's dark brown sugar, and there's Belgian candy syrup that gets added. Um, and it has some of that sweetness. You know, it has a high alcohol content, um, but it's not uh, overly thick. It's a 10.2% ABV. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when I drink this, I get a lot of stone fruit. And I'm thinking fig is the prominent flavor that I get. Uh, so that's a big thought here. Um, we are serving this with uh, a nice little brie cheese. And then on the bottom, we have toasted cinnamon raisin bread. And on the top, we have a fig jam. So you're going to really contrast with the creamy, fatty, buttery cheese. But then the fig jam and the cinnamon raisin toast on the bottom should really uh, connect with some of the flavors. Oh, God. That, just nice. when you get that beer right after it, really draws out that fig character. I like it. The kitchen set that cheese out a little while ago. You can tell it's a little soft. Too. Right. It's perfect. That's, yeah, it's the way it should be. The raisin, the cinnamon raisin bread, the fig jam, and the cheese gives us that fat. Yeah. That's, yeah, this, this is a good pairing right here. It's, flavors complement each other so well. Good. We, uh, before I came to Boulevard, I used to, as I was a teacher, I did like a little, uh, supper club thing I would do where I would do little beer dinners around town kind of pop up places and not very many people knew about it but I would sell out these little dinners and I did it with a, a, a friend of mine we called ourselves Food Underground Kansas City so the, the logo was F-U-K-C <laughs> um, but we had a lot of fun doing that I actually ate dinner at his house nobody knew this but I was going to propose to my wife that night and he did like a four course dinner and this was the third course. He served, not this exact, but a cinnamon raisin toast, a really good creamy cheese, and then fig jam. 
And in, in my brain, I'm like, why is there not a good quad next to this? So the next time he and I cooked a beer dinner, we repeated it, but then I added a really good quad. And it's just, you know, I've had people around here when we, like people we hire, we do this and talk about food pairings. I've had a couple different people say like, this, this is the bite that convinced them that beer and food pairings are an actual thing. You know, sometimes you think people are just full of it when they say, oh, you should have this with this. Right. But this is one where I think it really does Talk about making the food and the beer just sing together, right? Beers have moved into now more than just something you drank in the backyard after you mowed the grass or at the baseball game. Yeah. I mean, beer has grown into something. There is a culture behind it. I, I know this is marvelous. Good. All right. Okay, so now we're going to go a little bit bigger. I don't want to. I want to keep this so Good. I can compare back. I did the same right. thing, just a All little right. bit. So. This last beer is Bourbon Barrel Quad. Uh, this is one of our biggest beers right now. Uh, you know, our barrel facility used to be in our uh, old space. What used to be, before it was a brewery, uh, our founder, John McDonald's Carpenter Shop. Right. This really small room. And then we moved to some caves out by where the stadiums are, out in Independence. So we got to get bigger, but it was still not big enough to keep up with demand. And we built ourselves a new, uh, a new warehouse out south a little bit. And part of that plan was to build a big enough facility so we could have enough barrels to do what we wanted. So this beer became a year-round beer last year. And, you know, everybody around here was excited for that. But I think there's also a little bit of a, of a worry that if it's not just coming out once a year, are people still going to love it? Right. And it's a, people still drink this beer in the summer. And they should. You know, there's nothing wrong with drinking a beautiful bourbon barrel quad in the summer. Um, and this beer is is just so delicious. We moved it to four packs of 12-ounce bottles, too, which I know I'm not the only one that cracked this bottle at 2 in the morning alone sometimes. And then you wake up with a half bottle. You're like, a half bottle and a headache, to be honest. And if you're drinking this at 2 a.m., you're making bad decisions. I can share a 12-ounce bottle at 2 in the morning and still right. survive. <laughs> not a 750, right? Yeah. Um, well, let's get in there. So it's going to be the same beer base-wise, but now we've added barrel aging. So yeah, think vanilla, think caramel. There's also a uh, cherry in there, too. So you're going to get a bit of that cherry coming through. I just get so much toffee and caramel in that aroma. You're right. Toffee. Like a Heath bar. Yeah, exactly. It tastes like a Heath bar without the chocolate, you yeah. know? Well, we're going to help the that top. out right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is from a local bakery called Dolce. Uh, they're in Prairie Village. Uh, we've also done some fun events with them. So this is kind of their classic chocolate chip cookie. Now, remember I was saying, you know, we add sugar and brown sugar to the bourbon barrel quad. Well, there's going to be sugar and brown sugar in a cookie. Uh, this is set in a barrel that's charred. Well, you're cooking the cookie dough, so you're right. going to give some caramelization right. there. So there's all sorts of these kind of like caramelized sugar connections. And then there are beautiful chocolate chips, and you'll notice on top some shiny little sea salt as well that's just going to kind of be a flavor enhancer. So get into that cookie and go back to that beer. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. That's a good chocolate chip cookie. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. See, in, in sweetness, if there's too much of it, people describe a beer as tasting like fusel, like, a, like jet engine fuel. So if you go too sweet, you almost ruin that. What we wanted to do with this pairing was get it sweeter so you could taste some of that, that bourbon, right. that whiskey character. Because it happens, you know, as the, as the barrels expand and contract, you're actually going to leach some of that booze right. directly into the beer. So bringing that to the forefront, I mean, we could do it if we want. You can go back to that six glass and then go back. And I think you really can taste what's happened. That beer has matured. There's just so many more layers yeah. on the bourbon barrel. Yeah. 
I don't know if I'll ever drink milk while I eat a cookie again. Right? This is good. Yeah, so that's one of the really fun things for us about doing tours and tastings like this, is you really do, you make people believers. Right. You get people who, I can't tell you how often people walk in and they see what we just threw in front of you. And they say, I don't like sours, and or I don't like IPAs, and or I don't like dark beers. And then they get to the end of it, and they've loved all of them. Now, this is an experience that you offer to uh, the public? It is, yeah. We do this uh, twice a day on weekdays, and so we kind of change these bites up, uh, and I help with that on yeah. some level. Um, so it is something, you know, for us to, if you want to take a tour at Boulevard, you come, the doors open at 10 a.m., mm-hmm. it's first come, first serve for that day. Right. Uh, tickets are five bucks, you get a tour, you get some free beer. This tour is 25 bucks, mm-hmm. however, you can book it online. So you can do it ahead of time. It's kind of hard to explain it, but like the first Monday of the month, so the first Monday of August, all of the September tickets will become available. So we're always like two months ahead. But if so, if you've got friends coming in town or family, and you really want to make sure you get a tour of the brewery, it's a way to reserve a spot. And to be clear, too, we start with a full glass of Tank Seven. So you get a full Tank 7, you get a full kind of VIP tour, and then you end with this, and you get a, a, a token for a sample. So you're getting your money's worth, in my opinion. $25 for this experience alone. Yeah. Forget the Tank 7 and forget the token at the bar. One of the fun things for me about doing tours here, it's amazing how often you end up hearing stories about... I gave a tour to these two people once. They, were, they didn't seem like they were into it at all. They just seemed so bored. And they were the only two people on a tour, which can be painful sometimes. And we got like halfway through the tour, and I was just, it was like pulling teeth to talk to them, but I was just trying to get anything out of them. And they told me they were from Iowa, and they were on their honeymoon. And they had just gotten married, and all their friends and family were mocking them because they came to Kansas City. But Kansas City had a special place in their heart, and the only thing they really knew they were going to do was going to come to Boulevard. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, this is your, you're going to tell your grandkids about your honeymoon. So... We stopped the tour. We went to the roof. We opened a special bottle. We took a bunch of pictures. Nice. But why not? I mean, that's, that's, it's such a cool thing that this isn't just a bar and we're not just a brewery. Uh, we get to be a, a part of people's lives like that. Now, Kansas City's a neighborhood. It's a big neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You distribute to all of the states here in the Midwest. But yeah, people have experienced their lives while enjoying your beers. And so they have become a part of that neighborhood. You're a part of their neighborhood. So that's that's one of the things that's happened with the craft beer revolution. You can come to the place where it was originated, where it started, and have an experience for yourself. Yeah, I agree. Well, we have one bonus here for you if you want to get into it. So so we've talked a little bit about uh, switching some things up. So what I have in front of us beer-wise is our whiskey barrel stout. So this, just like our bourbon barrel quad, um, has made it to kind of the full year-round part of our uh, beer lineup. So four packs of this beer are now available year-round, and it is available. Bottles. Yep, and it is available on draft. Uh, this is 11.8 percent. Uh, people might be familiar with our old Imperial Stout, uh, which was a barrel-aged Imperial Stout. This is incredibly similar. I'm a Cicerone, and I have trouble telling the difference. It's an incredibly similar beer. 
Um, now, whiskey barrel stouts are known for obviously having some booze character to them, some of that vanilla character. Uh, they also have very dark malts. You're going to get some chocolatey character. Uh, interestingly enough, whiskey barrel stouts are also noted for having like coconut character. Right. So when we put our nose in there, look for that kind of coconut character. Yep. I think you'll get a little bit of it, but yep. we're going to really bring it out here. Oh, that's a good beer. So I believe I've had this before, too. Yeah. How long have you guys been brewing this? So like I said, we've made this for a long time. It just became yeah. the Whiskey Barrel Stout, yeah. but if you've ever had our Imperial Stout. Um, Adam, who's our Boulevard rep, whenever Adam comes, he brings me a beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here, here, you got to try this. So, and I, I think he brought us this. Or would we have had this at Boulevardia? It could have been both. Could have been both. This this beer has uh, become really one of our strong beers. You know, barrel aged beers have really picked up in the market. A lot of people, like I said, it seemed like there used to be like a six week period where everyone drank them in the winter, right? And that is now expanded where everyone drinks them all the time. Um, so to go with this, we have a macaroon. So coconut, it's been dipped in chocolate. So that chocolate's going to create a bridge. The creamy coconut is going to do both contrast. Uh, and connect. You know, you're going to get some of that coconut aroma flavor, but also it's kind of creamy and the right. texture is really going to contrast uh, the bubbles in the beer. Mm. You can see the top of that macaroon is like a little caramelized too, mm -hmm. which is going to help. Oh, yeah. You know what you're doing. <laughs> That's why Man. I'm so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Mm. This is an investment. I've spent a lot of money building this. <laughs> <laughs> we both have. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so, I mean, and it's funny, because people do ask, well, how do you come up with these? I think part of my problem is I never stop coming up with them. <laughs> that I'm the kind of person who is always, well, let me bring a dessert over. Let me, let me do this. I have an idea. You know, when the Royals were in their big World Series run a couple years ago, it was right when Bourbon Barrel Quad went to year-round. And so we were talking Heirloom Bakery that made that first bite. So bourbon barrel quad. You've got a quad, bourbon barrels, and you got cherries. So in my mind, I was thinking banana splits. And so I went to Heirloom, and they do like a sea salt caramel chocolate fudge brownie that is just one of the best desserts in the world. And I would go to Glacé, a fancy ice cream place that Christopher Elbow runs, and I'd get his bananas foster ice cream. Nice. So I'd show up at somebody's house, and they've spent all day smoking brisket or doing whatever, getting ready for a game, and I'm at work all day, and I show up with brownies that someone else made and ice cream that someone else made and beer that our brewers made, and I'm the hero <laughs> because that dessert, the chocolate brownie with the caramel swirl, the bananas foster ice cream, and then that beer, just mind-blowing. Kyle, you are a gourmand when it comes to beer and, and pairings. This has been fantastic. Well, you know, it's... it's I, I, I do have some enjoyment doing this alone, but it's much more fun to do it with friends. So I'm glad you could join me and, and kind of go through this journey. It's, it's, obviously, I have a passion for this beer, and I got to put together this food lineup. So it's, it's, it's fun having people like yourself well, that are passionate and care about it as well. This, this is a unique experience, and thank you for suggesting this. Mm -hmm. And Kyle, thank you so much, and cheers. cheers. Yeah, thanks for visiting. Good. Oh, that's it. Well, besides Kyle, I need to thank Adam Marinello. He's the Boulevard representative uh, here in mid-Missouri. And thanks for setting up the afternoon with Kyle. It was great. It was a great time. I can tell you, I, uh, I've been doing business with Boulevard for over 18 years, and they are fine folks in the craft beer industry. I could expect that we'll probably do a couple more shows which feature 
Boulevard Brewing Company. The Boulevard Beer Hall is located at 2534 Madison Street in downtown Kansas City. It's open Monday through Wednesday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. To learn more about the Smokestack Tasting Tour like I took and all of the other tours that they have there, just go over to their website and click on the Visit Us tab. And that's on their website at boulevard.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 yeah. ha, hey. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist. Tony, how are you this week? Doing well, Alan. Yourself? I'm doing all right. I got a little uh, little froggy. You can hear it in my voice. The what was it? Mel Torme, the Velvet Fog. Well, I'm the That's ve- right. I'm the Velvet Frog. So, <laughs> so where are you? I'm, I'm I'm home base right now. Back in back in St. Petersburg. Uh, planning to go to Des Moines this weekend, and then uh, next week I'm heading to uh, Indianapolis. When you're in Des Moines, oh, you know this. I don't have to tell you. Make sure you stop by Exile. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, those, absolutely. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, they're great people. And we're going to have a, we'll have them in an upcoming episode here real soon. So, anyway, what have you got for us this week? Well, it was interesting because, uh, like I said, I'm heading back to Indianapolis, and uh, Aaron and I lived in Indy uh, for about seven years from 2005 till about 2011. And that's when the craft beer explosion was really hitting. Uh, and it's interesting because it's like a second home to us. So we, uh, it's only four hours away from, from where we live now. So we go quite often. We go back about once every two months just to kind of visit things. And what you've what you always noticed over the years in going back is that, you know, things are growing. Things are changing. A lot of craft beer, by uh, little micro microbreweries and uh, brew pubs have been opening up. And every time you go, there's like 10 new new ones that, you, that you've seen. And you kind of wonder, like, you know, when when is the saturation point? You know, Indianapolis is not... You know, not a huge city, um, but it's happening everywhere. It's the same, same in Atlanta, where we used to live, too. Every time we go back, there's more and more breweries. But the last time we went to Indy, a couple, uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago, it was the first time where I had one of the breweries that opened up while we were, were there had closed. And you're starting to see a little bit more of that. Like, you're starting to see some old standards that, that were kind of part of that first uptick back in, you know, in the mid-2000s. Uh, where they, they've closed down now. Um, and that kind of accompanies a headline that I had seen in the Washington Post a few weeks ago uh, from Rachel Siegel. She wrote, uh, the headline was, the craft beer industry's buzz is wearing off. And of course, you, you kind of you see that, you kind of wondered when that shoe was going to drop with all these, these different brew, brew pubs opening up. But, uh, you know, and, and the story, uh, the Washington Post story is basically that in 2017, while nearly, nearly 1,000 new breweries opened, 165 closed, and that's a closing rate of 2.6%. And that, that's 42% more than in 2016 when only 116 uh, shot off their taps. They, they kind of beware uh, looking at those numbers. They say if you think it's peaked, that's not necessarily the case because some of that might not necessarily be saturation of the market. Um, number one, the boom, you know, has attracted a lot of home brewers and people who don't know how to run a business. They can make a beer, but they don't know how to run a business or market a product. Right. And two, and two, the, 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 the inverse of that, there are a lot of businessmen that want to cash in that don't know, you know, don't know anything about making good beer. <laughs> and, and the other, and the other part of it is too, you know, I mean, no industry can keep growing at the pace it had been growing. I mean, it was going double digits year over year for like the last decade. I mean, that's going to slow down. No, nobody can go that fast. There's only so many livers out there. Um, so, 
So while the pace of growth is slowing, craft beer is actually still growing, um, looking deeper into the numbers. Uh, it grew by 5% last year, which is the slowest in a decade, but it's still growing. And that's, I, I, I wanted to look even deeper into the numbers, and I found uh, Food & Wine magazine had a, had a uh, article that kind of delved deeper into the Brewers Association numbers. Those are the ones that put out the data upon which all this is based. And they pointed out that you know the retail dollar value of craft beer actually went up by 8%, giving craft beer a 23.4% share of the dollar market value. And what that means is basically people are essentially still willing to spend more for smaller local producers. And what's interesting about it is that smaller micros and brew pubs actually pushed 76% of the growth while the beer market as a whole dropped in volume. And what that means is that even though beer as a whole was slowing in growth, the little guys are still kind of kind of thriving. And that's backed up by the bottom line. The bottom line of all of this is that despite you know the ominous headlines and the slow growth of the industry in terms of volume, the sheer number of breweries, as you know, it continues to skyrocket. Like, you know, there are 6,372 as of 2017. And that's, that's a 16% jump from 2016. Right. So, like, you know, the little guys are still opening up and, and it looks like well, they're, they're still thriving. Right. The amazing thing is, is there's over 4,000 craft breweries in planning, according to the Brewers Association. So that's right. going to put us somewhere in the near future without loss, without attrition, that's going to put us somewhere over 10,000 craft breweries here in the United States if if the trend continues. Right. Well, and the people you've been talking to, too, a lot of them said it. I know guys beforehand said it and several right. others, you know, that, that the idea of, of becoming the big regional brewery is not, not, not realistic and maybe not even desirable. That, that's kind of what you're going to get. You're going to get more, more companies that are focused on, on their city or their, their territory and just keeping it local with like, you know, little, little juts out into the, to the bigger market, but, you know, just kind of keep, keep it local and keep, keep your core customers happy right. uh, and do it that way, which I, I don't think is a bad thing. I, I met with Dan Carey at New Glarus last week. And one of the things that he said is, you know, they, they used to be out in, northern Illinois, and they were selling out on the East Coast, and they were selling over into Minnesota and Iowa. And I mean, they they had quite quite a bit of regional, if not semi-national, uh, dis- distribution. And what they found out was, well, you know, let's just concentrate on Wisconsin. And so they, they just drew in their distribution. Now you can only get their beer in Wisconsin because their, mm-hmm. dema- their demand just continued to build in their home state, and they couldn't keep up with it. And so they decided, okay, what's the best thing to do? The best thing to do is to keep our local core customers happy. We're going to, we're only going to distribute in the state of Wisconsin. And I, I don't know if that's a business model that we're going to see other craft breweries emulate. I do know, sure. th- I do know this, is that it, the, the bottom line for New Glarus has not suffered one bit. Uh, they've been around for 25 years now, and they know what they're doing, and they're doing it well. Well, I'd be curious because I've seen it in other other businesses too. Like where you actually, if you decrease the supply, the demand kind of goes up. It makes it that rare, rarefied product. Are they seeing that? Because I, I know several other, you know, like restaurants do that with certain things. Like there's a limited supply, and they do that on purpose because it because the demand is so high for it. Right. Okay. So yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to know if it's actually helped them because it'd be, like every time I go to Wisconsin, I think you know Miller Park has a spotty cow on tap, and I'm like, that's where I hang out. I right. find that stand and I go. That's uh, and that spotted cow's really good. I brought home uh, a case of their uh, two women country lager 
It's, oh, it's nice. absolutely delicious. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's on the minds of all of these guys. How far can we go? How big can we go? How far do we want to distribute? They're important questions that uh, these craft breweries really need to address. No, absolutely. And, and, and maintaining the quality at, at the same time. I know that's... That's the, that's the ball people you're well, talking to. That's, I, that's the bottom line. You remember when I talked to the I talked to the guys out in Santa Fe, Jarrett uh, Babinsack and uh, Bert Boyce. You know, they both said, "Well, quality. You got to have that just to get your foot in the door." Right. You know, mm-hmm. if you open a craft brewery in a market where people know craft beer and it's Shinola. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not going to be there very long. Now, you can get away with that in some markets where there's no other craft brewer. Mm-hmm. And I know of examples of that. But, if, like, let's say anywhere where there's good quality craft beer being made by other people, if you open a brewery or a brew pub and your beer is bad, it's not going. you're not going to make it. You're going to be out on the street real quick. You're going to be done. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you're hell, hell of marketers. I think that there's enough sophistication now in the craft beer drinking uh, community, I don't think that you're going to be able to pull the wool over their eyes. I don't think you're going to be able to sell something that's a substandard product. Absolutely. Now, I had the power to the beer snobs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We have our little bit of influence up on the market. In conclusion, I'll just ask you, what do you think is going to happen? I, you know, I, I do think it's going to get more localized and more more centralized. And I mean, eventually the, the growth is going to is going to stop. And I mean, there will be attrition. I, I, there's, I mean, you know, the the beer drinking population is not exploding. We talked we've talked in pre- previous segments about how younger people are drifting towards you know the harder stuff and, and wine and stuff like that. So it's 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 going to get slimmer pickings. But I, but the hope is you know that it, that all bears out. And what we're talking about is that. What you're going to have, the people who are left standing are, are going to be the ones who know how to make their make their product and get it to the people who like it. Yeah. And and that's something that you know I I don't mind that I I like I'd love to get spotted cow at the at the corner grocery, but you know I I also love the preciousness of it. You know when you bring it back from Wisconsin, I love yeah. I love flying someplace and getting something I can't get anywhere else. That's what makes craft beer cool to me. When uh, I was coming through Chicago and I was staying at Brooks and my friend Brooks and Michelle's house, and they knew I was going to New Glarus, and on uh, Saturday morning, that's when I was going to be there, Brooks texted me. He said, Spotted Cow, bring it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yeah. They're right there. Yeah, it's a a treasured commodity, and Mm -hmm. uh, their business model uh, is really, really tight. They've got a thing going on there. There were probably between 700 and 1,000 people there on a Saturday afternoon. Wow. I mean, Yeah, it was, the parking lots were just full. And I don't know if you've been to that part of Wisconsin, uh, just south southwest of Madison. It's beautiful farmland. I mean, rolling hills and the crops are looking great this year. They've gotten a lot of rain. Um and yeah, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous country. So uh, I'll be talking about New Glarus in uh, episodes to come so people can look forward nice. to that. So anyway, Tony Rehagen, thank you very much, uh, freelance journalist. Uh, have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Sounds good, Alan. Y'all take care. All right. Bye-bye. You 
You've been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers. And cheers to every one of you. Thanks, folks, for listening. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bruise Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at The Bruise Trav LR. You can check out our show notes over at the website, thebruisetraveler.com. And hey, I've got a couple of blog entries up. Still working on getting it all caught up, but there's some reading material over there now if you'd like to take a look. As I said at the top of the show, if you're enjoying the podcast, please go over to iTunes and give us a hug with a five-star rating and a glowing review. It would be so appreciated. The soundtrack for The Bruise Traveler is provided by Gaelic Storm. You can find all of their music on iTunes or at their website, GaelicStorm.com. And while there, check out their new album, Go Climb a Tree, and look at their tour schedule to see when they will be coming to a town near you. This week, they'll be in Nashville, Lexington, Kentucky, Dayton, Ohio. Go see them live and you will love it. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So if I don't see you at your favorite tap room or pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. Remember, drink locally and think globally. Take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And as always, Merrily, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. Thanks again, everyone, saying so long for just a while. Just one more time To that old place on the shore Down the lanes of this harbor town Like so many times before There's so much you've done for me So much I've asked of you But when I'm gone There's one more thing Please promise me I'll do Oh
night so long ago You sang the raised eyeglasses To the starlight on the snow Well, if you should see those northern lights On a frosty winter's eve Watch them dance and know I'm there There's no need to grieve Fermentation and civilization are inseparable. John Chardee, American poet, born June 24, 1916, Boston, Massachusetts, died March 30, 1986, Metuchen, New Jersey. <laughs> 